Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. My guests are Aaron Treehub of Auburn University, Chelsea Denault of the Michigan Digital Preservation Network, and Clint Bellinger, also of Auburn, as well as the ADPNet Technical Policy Committee. They will discuss the Alabama Digital Preservation Network, that is ADPNet, winner of the Alabama Historical Association's 20 Alabama Historical Association's 2023 Digital History Award for Small Projects. Congratulations to you all and to ADPNet. Let's start with you, Aaron. Tell us about ADPNet. Well, thanks, Marty, for that introduction and for your kind note about the recent award to the network. I think I may be the only person around still active in the network who was present at the creation, uh, to quote Dean Acheson. So the history of ADPNet actually goes back to the history of another network called the Meta Archive Cooperative. This was the first private locks network in the United States, probably in North America, and maybe even in the world. Locks is open source software that was developed at the Stanford University Libraries in the early 2000s. It stands for Lots of Copies Keep Stuff Safe, to e-resources that libraries had subscribed to but that for whatever reason might become unavailable in the future. And this was to preserve access to those resources for libraries that had already paid for them. A couple of people, some colleagues of mine in the early 2000s, got the bright idea that this software could actually be used to preserve locally created or born digital content for libraries, archives, museums, galleries. I'll mention their names. Martin Halbert, who was then at Emory University, and Catherine Skinner, also at Emory. So Martin floated the idea of using lock software to preserve locally created digital content, cultural heritage materials, basically. One thing led to another, and with the assistance of the Library of Congress, the Meta Archive Cooperative was formed and launched approximately 2004-2005. It was started by six universities in the southeastern United States. Auburn University was one. Auburn University was one of them. I was involved in the creation of Meta Archive, and after about a year or two of operation, you know, we had a really good working proof of concept. We were able to establish that this approach actually did what we hoped it would do. You know, I floated the idea to Sue Medina, who was then the director of the Network of Alabama Academic Libraries, that maybe we should think about doing something similar in Alabama, and that Alabama would be a really good test case for this because it's a relatively poor state, but it had rich digital collections, some of which, Marty, you helped to create way back when at Auburn University. So the thinking was, if we could set up a community-based digital preservation network using open source software in Alabama, pretty much anybody could. Sue prepared a proposal to the Institute of Museum and Library Services. I believe that was in late 2005. I helped in Library Services. I believe that was in late 2005. I helped put it together. 
We submitted it, you know, in a great rush. I remember at the time I was not entirely happy with the proposal, but I thought, well, you know, we'll put it in and see what happens. And we heard that it had been accepted shortly thereafter. And so we were in business. There were originally six institutions in Alabama that participated in the two-year national leadership grant from IMLS. It was ADAH, the Alabama Department of Archives and History, Auburn University, Troy University, the University of Alabama, the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and the University of North Alabama. So that actually may be seven. I'm not sure. These were the founding institutions. We started under that IMLS grant with very strong technical support from the LOCKS office at Stanford University. The grant ran from 2006 to 2007. About halfway through the grant, we were already harvesting and preserving content at six preservation nodes, as we call them, around the state. And I should have mentioned, you know, one of the reasons we chose LOCKS for this is that we wanted a geographically distributed preservation network that contained identical copies of all of the content in separate locations and that could be audited automatically and continuously for what they call bit rot. Because digital files do not last forever. They, like most other things, decay over time. And LOX is designed to prevent that. By 2007, we had a working network and we were off to the races. In 2008, the grant ended. We went into the grant very clearly with the understanding that we would keep the network going on our own dime afterwards. And that is what we're going on our own dime afterwards. And that is what we have done. ADPNet has been fully financially and more recently technologically self-sustaining since 2008. So that is the history of the network, sort of in a nutshell. We currently have 12 members. You can find them on the ADPNet website, www.adpn.org. And we have over 3,500 active, what are called archival units, which are basically collections or pieces of digital collections. And we're preserving between 89 and 90 terabytes of unique content in the network. So we're actually one of the larger community-based private locks networks in the world. So I will stop there and let you go on to your next question. Thanks a lot, Aaron. And I appreciate how it functions. But now let's talk Chelsea, who is at the Michigan Digital Preservation Network, to find out why someone from Michigan is involved in an Alabama project. Yeah, great question, right, Marty? I joined the MDPN as the network coordinator in April of 2020, a weird time to start a new job. My role and frankly, the, the idea for the MDPN came out of an IMLS grant that had started the year before at Grand Valley State University. The grant was run by Matt Schultz, who used to work for the Meta Archive Cooperative. And the grant was called Stepping Stones to the National Digital Platform. And the grant really sought to understand if there was a need for a statewide digital preservation solution in Michigan, but also to survey what other regional or, or topic-specific digital preservation regional or, or topic-specific digital preservation initiatives out there, what they were doing well and how they were doing it, and to take those learnings and to apply them to perhaps a new network here in Michigan. 
the report that came out of that grant emphasized ADPNet as a model for what we might do in Michigan, right? They were financially sustainable. They were handling all of their own technical needs. They were growing their membership and the amount of content that they preserved, right? They were a wonderful model for us. And so from very early on in my role at MDPN, I've been in contact with Aaron to ask questions and gain insight and solicit advice. And it's been a really helpful relationship, not only for me as the network coordinator, because I actually don't have very deep technical skills. I actually have a PhD in history. And so it's been really helpful to learn from people like Aaron who have been doing like Aaron who have been doing this for much longer than me. And it's been helpful for the MDPN more broadly as well. We've been able to look to ADPNet for their membership policies and to understand how they were structuring costs. We've learned so much from their technical team, including Clint. Clint and I were actually just on a meeting yesterday to talk with one of our node hosts. And unfortunately, that meeting was canceled because our node host up there had 42 inches of snow. They had a snow day on May 1st. So we've learned so much from their technical team. They have been building ways to automate some of the preservation processes in the lock software that we use as well. We've talked to folks at ADPNet about sustainable governance and building financial reserves and how to price storage. And Aaron has graciously presented at our annual member meeting in the past. And so truly, I would say everything that we have and has the ADPNet fingerprint somewhere in there. I will say one thing that does differentiate us from ADPNet, though, is our commitment to prioritizing small and under-resourced organizations in the state. The data from the Stepping Stones project revealed that there were a lot of organizations in Michigan who weren't doing digital preservation or, frankly, even thinking about it. And most of those were, you know, small historical societies, community archives, public libraries that didn't have a lot of financial resources to invest in preservation or didn't have the sort of deep technical expertise to be able to implement a preservation strategy. Those that were already doing digital preservation were the big universities, University of Michigan, Michigan State University, Grand Valley State University. So in some sense, Those organizations didn't need the MDPN. They had money and they had expertise to invest in digital preservation. So our vision became, why should each of those those institutions invest money into developing their own digital preservation systems when instead everyone could contribute to one unified statewide platform? And in doing so, hopefully lift up the smaller organizations who need help and provide them with a more accessible path forward to protect their unique history. That's a little bit about MDPN and everything that we've learned from ADPNet. How successful do you feel MDPN has been? I would say that our success has been measured. I think we have benefited from the sort of head start, right, in all of the great things that we've learned from ADPNet and Meta Archive and all of the other private locks networks, PLNs out there. We do feel like we've had a leg up, but we also have had to deal with the fallout from the pandemic. A lot of the partners who were interested in a statewide digital preservation solution in 2019 have since experienced some financial issues. And it's been, I think, a harder ask to make of a lot of the larger 
anchor universities and partners who we were speaking with in 2019. I will say one thing, we did apply for the same grant that helped create ADPNet, the IMLS National Leadership Grant for Libraries. We applied last year, and it was our first time applying for a big, highly competitive federal grant like that. And it was very helpful to us that we were able to point to all of the incredible work that ADPNet has done and that we've learned from over the past two to three years, and which ultimately set us up on the strong path that we're on. And we were able to point that we weren't going on this path alone, that we had collaborators like ADP, that we had collaborators like ADPNet across the country. We were also able to argue that what we might learn from our grant could eventually benefit everyone who uses the lock software, including ADPNet. That grant was ultimately accepted and funded, and we are continuing work on that. So, right, the success has been in large part to ADPNet, and we're hoping to continue growing and continue developing and move forward with our grant. It's a little bit of a long road to hoe, isn't it? Yeah, it's not something that happens overnight. And it's funny that you say that, Marty, because I am a very impatient person, personally and professionally. One of the things that I feel like I often say to Aaron is it's been two, three years now that the MDPN has existed. Like, why aren't we preserving content? Like, time's a ticking. And right, truly, it's, it's a long game. I agree with you. And I don't know, you're building an entirely new organization from the ground up that has an enormous scope and an enormous vision. I do have to step back and be more realistic about my expectations, but we're definitely getting there. Part of our funding through this IMLS grant is buying all of the hardware for all of our five nodes. Those are starting to get set up right now, actually. So we're getting there. We're not quite as ready as ADPNet, but we'll we'll get there. Well, they've been doing it a little bit longer. And you not only have not been at it for a very long time, but you started out with a very steep pair of hills to climb. The first was the pandemic, and now everybody's a little bit panicky after the pandemic and expecting there to be economic difficulties. And so uh, people are trying to hunker down. They're trying to reorient themselves. At least this is what I'm blaming it all. <laughs> I appreciate blaming it all. <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for that, Chelsea. Clint, let's move to you and talk about how ADP net works and Go back over and explain all of this stuff for our non-technical, but still very interested audience members. Yeah, for sure. So the way ADPNet works, I think the easiest way to explain will be to follow what happens to a collection as it moves through our process. So let's start with a small institution. Let's say we have a public library that has files that they want to preserve. Maybe they are high-risk scans of old photos, maybe of local monuments and things like that. To get those started into ADPNet, we'll set that institution up with an account to one of our systems where they just upload the files into a folder and let us know that those files are ready. From their perspective, of those small, it's taken care of. It gets handed off to the technical policy committee with ADPNet where we'll take that new collection and we will do some validation on it. We will basically check the format, make sure that it's not missing any bits. And once it looks good, we will add it to the official list of collections. And then we'll send out a broadcast saying to all the nodes, there's an update to the official list. This new collection is ready to be added. 
And actually, since we have so many collections now, thousands of collections, that actually is where a lot of our in-house custom tools have come about. Because when you're dealing with that much data, you kind of put it into a database at that point. I'll mention our colleagues, uh, Tobin Catildo and Charles Johnson, have done a lot of in-house development work for custom pieces for this. Once the list is updated, we have a new collection ready to be harvested. We'll send a notification out to each node. It's really, it's really the larger institutions in state that will control the nodes, because those are typically the institutions that have IT resources, computer resources, and that kind of know-how. The nodes, the larger institutions that have these nodes, essentially it's a computer with a lot of storage space, gobs and gobs of terabytes. Whenever the new collection is ready, one person from each node will go in and officially add the new collection. At that point, Locks will start downloading copies of the collection to each node. And over time, you have several copies of the same exact files across each nodes. And now what Locks continues to do on the back end is it regularly checks for things like Aaron mentioned bit rot and other kinds of file corruptions that may come up. Locks sort of has an automatic voting system where the nodes check in with each other to make sure that all the files are pristine still. That's very high level overview of how Lux works and how our custom bits, our custom bits in ADPNet are plugged in there. If a collection suffers bit rot or some other kind of corruption in one node, do the other nodes replace that collection so that the bit rot is gotten rid of? Yes. I don't know the exact technical details of how that happens, but it will detect the difference there. And I believe it will create a new copy of that file from another known trusted source. So that's doing that updating regularly itself. You don't have to go in there and look at it or handle it. This is where software works its software wonders. I don't know who I should address this next question to, probably Aaron, but if anybody wants to chime in, please do. I assume that there are costs involved if you want to get somehow involved in ADPNet, either as a node or as a provider of these collect party. There are membership fees and storage fees. They're as low as we can make them. And one of the beauties of running your own network is that you make the rules and you can set the prices. So this is, in my view, a very great advantage of doing it ourselves over outsourcing it to a commercial provider. Those companies have their place, but every time you sign a contract, you're basically giving hostages to fortune and you don't know what's going to happen with the company or with their price schedule or whatever. One of the great advantages for this kind of work for institutions like ours is we control it. There are two levels of membership in ADPNet. There's what's called the host level. Those are institutions that run a locks server or a preservation node. Currently, I believe the membership fee annually for those institutions is $2,500 a year plus storage fees. Because those institutions are doing a lot of the heavy lifting in the network, they get a break on the storage fees. Because those institutions are doing a lot of the heavy lifting in the network, they get a break on the storage fees. So their storage fees are, are slightly lower. The other category of membership is participant members. These are typically smaller, less well-resourced institutions. They want to preserve their content in a network like ADPNet. They don't have the IT or other resources that the larger institutions do. They can join as participants. They don't have to run a preservation node. All we ask of them is that they contribute content regularly 
and help out with shared governance. So it's kind of a sweat equity contribution. I believe the annual membership fee for those institutions is $325 a year. Such a bargain. And their storage fees are correspondingly a little bit higher, but typically they have less content, so they wind up not paying too much money. To listeners who may be hearing us well after the recording of this program, that the fees as you have laid them out right now, as of May 2023. They are as of May 2023, and ADP Networks on a shared governance model. There are two basically governance committees. There's the steering committee, which is the executive committee. The chair of that rotates every year among the member institutions. Everybody gets a turn. And then there's the technical policy committee, which handles the IT side of things. And that's the committee that Clint Bellinger at Auburn is currently convening. I would like to make an annual review of our membership and storage fee schedules, sort of a standing item for our steering committee. They haven't changed in years. I know for a fact that they compare very, very favorably with some of the alternatives out there. Over time, we may want to reduce storage fees. We may want to tweak the membership fees. We actually have a fairly healthy financial reserve with our banker. That's the University of Alabama, Tuscaloosa. And I can tell you, we trust them completely <laughs> from Auburn. <laughs> They've done a great job for it. And we have, as I say, a very healthy operating reserve. You know, we're even able to offer a quite substantial hardware subsidy to institutions that want to become host members, that want to host a preservation node. Currently, we offer up to $6,000 towards the cost of the equipment for doing that. We may be unique among the community-based preservation networks in, in doing that. I will say, Aaron, we do too. Of course, we've never had to cross that bridge because we're just buying hardware now. But we also plan on offering it, inspired by the fact that y'all offer it. And we've had a number of institutions take advantage of it. And Chelsea, I'm sure you will too. I should also mention ADPNet was set up originally to serve cultural heritage institutions in the state of Alabama. Several years ago, we opened membership up to institutions in other states. We did that because we were getting inquiries all the time and we got tired of saying no. We thought, why not? So in 2020, we welcomed our first out-of-state member. That's Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. We would be happy to entertain inquiries or requests from other institutions, certainly in the region, but really anywhere. And also, ADPNet was set up, as, as Chelsea was talking about, the origins of the Michigan network. They wanted to serve as a model for other states or regions that might be interested in doing something similar. That was very much a part of the pitch that we made way back in 2005 to IMLS, and I suspect it's one of the reasons why our proposal was funded. We're very gratified to see other states follow suit. Indiana is another state that has set up its own statewide preservation network, largely along the same lines. Georgia is interested in doing it, and Michigan is doing it. And I'm glad that these initiatives are spreading because as we do more digital preservation of cultural heritage items, we're going to need these kinds of resources to make sure that they don't simply get lost, that they don't evaporate. If someone wants to find out more about ADPNet, how would they go about doing that? There is a form on our website that institutions can fill out if they're interested in joining us. There is also information on our website about points of contact for people who may be interested. 
We are administratively part of the network of Alabama Academic Libraries in Montgomery, and the current director of NAIL, as we call it, is Sheila Snow. Her contact information is on the website. People really should feel free to reach out to any member in the network. Any member can get their inquiry to the steering committee. That's, that's the short answer. That's probably the answer that we need. My guests have been Aaron Treehub of Auburn University, Chelsea Denault of the Michigan Digital Preservation Network, and Clint Bellinger, also of Auburn, as well as the ADP Net Technical Policy Committee. They have discussed the Alabama Digital Preservation Network, which is the winner of the Alabama Historical Association's 2023 Digital History Award for Small Projects. And once again, y'all, let me say not only thank you so much for running this project that has not been something big and splashy, but is totally necessary to long-term preservation of digital heritage and digital projects, but also congratulations for the well-deserved Digital History Award from AHA in 2023. Well, thank you so much for that, Marty. And if I might add one thing, I often compare digital preservation to to utilities, electricity, water, gas, whatever. It's not glamorous. It's not even visible most of the time, but it's extremely necessary. And it is a long game. With any luck at all, these utilities will continue to run well into the future. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at city stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.